0: Hello, and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. In this episode, we continue our series on how historians research and write on historical topics. In our previous episodes, we discussed how historians select research topics, how they develop research questions, and find relevant secondary sources. To recap, secondary sources are books, articles, and artifacts created by people who did not participate or directly witness the historical events that they're writing about. Those authors are building their accounts on what we call primary sources, which is what we are talking about here today. Primary sources are those created by people who participated in or were witness to historical events. These might be memoirs, diaries, letters, interviews, or some other form of testimony. In a research project, the primary sources will be your main source of information, the raw data on which you will build an argument, and, to be honest, your main source of fun, because this is where you will see the human experience of history firsthand. As you read or experience primary sources, you will get to know the people involved, witness their humanity, and better understand the past. So. In this episode my hand-picked panel of historians will discuss different ways to search for relevant and useful primary sources how to determine which primary sources might be more useful or important than others and the historian's ethical responsibility to be familiar with as much of the primary source base as possible as in our previous resources the panel of historians consists of eric greisinger allison millward cb repass matt chandler and ryan tripp okay Historians, so we've found a topic, we've developed a research question to help guide our research on that topic, and we have found a bunch of secondary sources to help establish the context and assess the current state of the literature on this topic. So how do we get started finding primary sources so we can finally get to the meat of our project?
1: Again, go to the library. (laughs) Um, think Think about the broader scope of your topic, you have a loose question. You have something you want to find out, um, and I I always use myself as an example so I can explain to the student. In my in my course, my announcements always revolve. I did the I did a battle, the Chosen Reservoir, but they my students understand that when we talked about bias, I said I had a very specific bias. My father in law was a survivor of the Chosen. Charles and Rosary Battle and Korean War. But my question was, mm-hmm. how does collective memory affect the survivors over the decades? Because a group of guys had met for 40 years. They, they met every Tuesday night, uh, the first Tuesday of every month, and how did their memories change what, what they think happened? So this was a, t- a very different approach. I said, so, so think about, so what's your topic? We gotta find the primary evidence so let's start at the very, very beginning. Here's your event, what do you, where are you gonna find this stuff? Newspapers, archives. I spent days in the Marine Corps archives um, working on interviews taken in the field right at, as, they, as they, they didn't retreat. As they withdrew from this battle, You know what, what were they saying? So that I could then compare it 50 years later. So this is what they need to determine the base the very, the very broad base, to find out the primary sources at the time of the event. Newspapers, diaries, um, letters. Uh, was there video then? Are there videos to be found? Um, and again, let's use that library source.
2: I think also what you're saying, when students approach it, sometimes they just think in a very linear pattern that, Well, I'm just going to look at something like the Constitution, but what about the letters talking about the debate around the Constitution? That's going to give a different perspective and even look outside the field a little bit. I know my own research talking about bridging during World War II, looking at primary sources from scientific groups, from uh, production areas about the tonnage rates of those bridges that helps me as a primary source saying the reason they can get a 40 ton tank across the Rhine is because this uh artifact from this group that created this bridge says it has the tensile strength to hold that 40 ton tank so you don't need to limit the primary source
3: in terms of logistics too I think uh, SNU offers I think in the uh I think it's the Western Civ courses and the uh, some of the military history courses that, you know, universities often uh, sponsor, uh, you know, online uh, primary sources. I mean, I know there's like Fordham University has those source books, um, but it's also, uh, you know, there's additional universities and historical societies, too. But if you look up there, you know, you, you. you know, historical society with the Tulsa Massacre, you'll get, you know, the Tulsa and Oklahoma historical societies and, uh, you know, a, a range of primary sources there. And I think that's a good first step uh, for uh, students and often, you know, with a critical view and, you know, what, what, what are the sources that they put online and why. But I think it's, that can be very, very helpful.
4: There are many, and depending on the topic, there are probably enough, printed readers of collection collected primary sources right um, they might be in translation they might be again if it's an English history topic it might be in English but that is one place to look but what what the reason why I was suggesting digital resources is because if money's tight you might not have the capability or capacity to spend two three hundred four hundred dollars and buy a bunch of used books even if they're going to be helpful for your research uh, nevertheless I think that looking at primary source readers, uh, compiled volumes, can be wonderfully helpful. The issue there is that the editor or the compiler has already made predetermined choices as to what sources matter. They might be, again, omitting sources that you want. So here's an example. Uh, I was doing something with, I don't know why I'm talking about French history so much tonight, but I guess that's what's on my mind. Um, We were looking at grievance petitions heading into the coming of the French Revolution. And uh, I was looking at one from the clergy, okay, members of the church. The most important part of that primary source was cut out completely from this excerpt that I saw. So that choice by that editor, by that host of that site, did not really, in my view anyway, interpret that source accurately because the the meat of that source was taken out completely. And that could be a problem. So one of the things that we have to be realistic about is you're probably going to have to rely on some excerpted materials, some Edited down materials, right? You might not be able to read the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in full. Okay, you might not. You might not be able to read Don Quixote, whatever. Uh, you might be able to get a representative sample of that in excerpt form. But again, this depends on the level and it depends on length. So if you are in fact writing a master's thesis, it's ideal to find the full text. If you're writing a five-page paper, we do want you to engage with the primary source in some capacity. So the excerpt will probably be acceptable at that level. So it really depends again on the goals of the project, the level advancement in terms of where you're at in your own historical education. But one of the problems we do have with primary sources, of course, is what, if we're doing web searches, how do we know if someone's site is translating something accurately? That's a really tricky situation. So In a sense or in essence, the same skill set that you need to develop to, say, discern accurate news stories from inaccurate news stories, that's something that can be applied here to identifying the veracity of – they might not be true, but I mean the, the accuracy, excuse me, of a translated source or if it's excerpted, making sure that it is representative of the whole. Um, Now, students tend to go to sites like uh, Fordham's Internet History Sourcebook. They'll go to BYU, Eurodocs. Those are fine. Those are great places to start. But as you had suggested, look at what your secondary sources are referencing. Now, you don't want to just take an entire bibliography from another historian and take it as yours. Oh, this is mine now, right? But you could, if you had, say, five books, they're going to be citing primary sources. If you can track those down. You can use those sources. But again, it would be to me academically dishonest if you took somebody's monograph and just took all of their primary sources and said, these are now my primary sources, because that's not your selection. That's their selection. But it's certainly reasonable to say, all right, this is clearly like, like you were saying, if this is discussed all the time, like Domesday book, again, looking at England now, if someone's citing that all of the time, clearly that is a incredibly important source for understanding English society at the time. If you bypass that, you're missing key evidence that other historians have referenced. So if you see it a lot, yeah, touch on it. And with primary sources, remember, they can be outright incorrect because that'll demonstrate the thinking of the time. I don't like the phrase, but zeitgeist or, you know, how people perceive something. So let's talk about the history of pandemics really quickly. People's misunderstanding of miasmatic theories versus the germ, the germ theory of disease. That is a problem, right? They understood that something was in the air making them sick, but they didn't understand why, right? So that can be fun, but you have to be careful, right? If you're picking something that's deliberately uh, included in your paper to show that it's patently false, you need to make sure that you're not just setting up a straw man to knock it down. It has to serve a bigger purpose for your paper. But primary source location is actually harder than a secondary source location, in my view. Um, Significantly so, significantly so. It is because it's scattered all over exactly. the world, um, yeah.
0: and that's where it gets difficult for students when it comes to looking for primary sources. Is that a lot of times you're going to be doing archival research?
4: Right. And I deliberately avoided archival research because I, I, you know, you might not have the ability as a BA student to go travel to um, Nicaragua for to, to visit some archive. Right? And as but, a and as
0: a BA cool. student, yeah but I'm gonna, I'm gonna push onward to grad school and beyond. The professional historian is going to be ethically responsible for finding all available primary sources on a topic, not just the ones that are digitized, not just the ones that are available in the US, they're the ones that are gonna be everywhere. And the problem of course is that of all of the primary sources in the world, only a tiny percentage of those have been digitized and are available through a Google search. The vast majority of documents are on paper somewhere in a, in, a, in, a, in a drawer in, you know, in the basement of some government building somewhere, and it is the responsibility to go find all of those documents. Now, to start the process, you mentioned this a, uh, a little bit, but um, again, once you're, I, I tend to use the existing secondary sources to help me to identify where are the archives I want to go. Right. I mean, I'm not going to be too, I, I may be, I may be looking for specific documents that, 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 you know, historians are mentioning in their footnotes and all that. But my goal is more to get a sense of where are the sources located so that I can start planning trips to do with the, to do the research on these things, because I have no idea what archives exist out there. Mm-hmm. And so it's perfectly legit to build on the work of of your predecessors. And if your predecessors have found archives in various places, use those as your starting point. Now those your those predecessors may not know all of the all of the archives either, which is why you're going to start looking at all of those books again that we that we talked about when we were talking about secondary sources. Start mining the footnotes and the bibliographies of all those books that you looked at for secondary sources to figure out where did they go to find primary sources. Some of those primary sources may be published in readers like you said, but that there could be some problems with that depending on you know the editor and all of that. Uh, but even more valuable they'll tell you I went to find an oral history for this person here i went to I went over here to find this government report on this thing uh I went to the British Library to find x y z and that'll start to give you a sense of where all the various archival collections are that you're going to need to get to know when you're pursuing this this project
4: It can be fun also don't forget it sounds like sounds like a drag but it's actually really fun and it also gives you a chance to expose yourself to the local culture local customs you'll get a sense of what it is like in that place even if it's say you're a, you're you know in the midwest and you're from the east coast that's going to give you a sense of what it's like to be there and that's going to also color in your mind what it was like when you're writing, right? So it does actually help to visit these places to smell the air. I know the air wouldn't smell the same today as it did then, but feel what it's like to be there. Cause places, I know this sounds a little silly, but some places have an essence or a feeling. Now I'm not saying talk about spirits or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, if you're in um, Berlin, it feels like Berlin, right? If you're in Manhattan, it feels like Manhattan and not going to those places. You're losing out on some of the experience that could contribute to your deeper understanding of that topic. And it could also help you understand what the primary source actor is talking about. Let's say they mention a river, right? And you actually see that river. It might not be mind-blowingly transformative, but you can then say, yes, I did see the Ganges River, okay? I saw it. I understand now, right? So, yeah, visiting could be fun. It just costs a lot of money. So. That's that's downside. Right.
0: <laughs> well, that, that that could be an entire other episode. Is how do I pay for historical <laughs> how research? How, how do you maybe,
4: survive? <laughs>
0: maybe we'll end up doing that. Yeah, <laughs> because and but that that is a, that is one of the challenges that historians have to deal with. Is how do I you know meet all these ethical obligations that we keep throwing around here? How do I do that on a grad student budget? Or an assistant professor budget, or a you know somebody working completely outside of a history field. How do I do it on that budget? How do I do it? And that's 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 not easy. Um, but that's not a question we have to answer right now, so we won't need to worry about that.
5: And I think on top of that too, I think um, I don't think this is necessarily for the upper level students or the capstone students, but I do think sometimes you know students just starting out with history underestimate. Non-written primary sources. I think sometimes they're afraid to interpret artifacts, right? Yeah, exactly. Art. art, is definitely photography, right? And you know, I think that. I mean, for me, especially, you know, when I'm when I'm writing about nurses on the Western Front, I mean, their jobs were very hands-on. Like they and and everything, everything from what they wore. To to uh, what they were allowed to do, um, what they how how like what they touched, right? That's like if you can find some sort of material attachment to to your topic, you should be right. You should be trying to interpret that. Um, So I I definitely encourage students to think about who exactly are you writing about, and of course you know find. I I love the idea of kind of fighting the broad newspapers and, and, you know, the documents and documents surrounding that. But yeah, don't be afraid to interpret artwork. Don't be afraid to interpret. um, You know, it goes back to some students only think that there are only certain types of history, but like I said, with the nurses, uniforms, fashion history is history. It's loaded with meaning. Um, It's loaded with, um, rank and it's loaded with gender ideology. Right. And it's loaded with, you know, all of this stuff that's going on, on, um, you know, and how nurses have to, um, kind of perform their profession. Um, so, so definitely look around, but like, once you start getting a source and you read that source, like pick up on some of the material things or or the, the tangible things that they're talking about.
2: I think going back to the artifact thing, as well there are going to be things that people are researching in history where there is no written record of that people it's
0: going to be an artifact
5: that's a good point yeah
0: yeah and i mean in in a way we live in kind of a golden age of primary sources just because of the availability of stuff online these days um uh there's you 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 have you all have uh, kind of Uh, demonstrated that, I mean, there is a lot of stuff that's available online now uh, that was never available before. I mean, there's online newspaper databases, there's um, a lot of primary source collections online, there's a lot of artifacts that are kind of displayed online through online exhibits, that kind of thing. Um, Getting back to kind of the ethical responsibilities of a historian, again, this is going to vary widely depending on the level of the student, a student at at a gen ed history level is probably going to be fine with using some of these primary sources that are available online that everybody has access to. But when we get to the advanced students, when we get to the grad students, I mean, what is the responsibility for people when they get to the advanced level um, beyond? Because I'm thinking, you know, beyond the the stuff that's available online, we all know that institutional budgets and all of that will prevent most organizations from putting everything online. So a lot of places, there's going to be some stuff online, but most stuff, I don't know, you can't quantify it. Some, most, all, I don't know, depending on the institution, won't, will have a lot of their stuff will not be digitized. And so what is the responsibility of an advanced historian for accessing those other places, those other sources that are not online?
1: Well, do they have a responsibility if, I, I'm not sure how to form this question, but uh, I think it plays into you had a question about how much is too much, how much is too little. If they have enough primary information to work into proving their argument, do they have to go out there? Do they have to go further than what, they, what is accessible online? Maybe that's more of the question.
0: Yeah, that, that's kind of the core of it is, and again, the answer to that will probably depend on the level of the student. But, you know, if you've got a PhD student who's working on a dissertation and they know that there's an offline collection somewhere in, I don't know, Des Moines, Iowa, do I have to go there? The ethical response, you know, the ethical responsibility for, yeah, for, a you know, an undergrad freshman student, probably not. <laughs> We're not going to make you do a research trip to go to this place because, you, you know, it's probably, it may not be useful to you. But, you know, if you're writing, if you're claiming to be the expert who's writing the monograph on this topic, you probably are going to have to go. You're probably going to go to Des Moines and see what's there. Even if you don't end up using it, you're still going to need to know what's there. Because again, you don't want to run into the problem where you publish a book and then someone comes back and says, hey, you know, there's this collection of documents over here that completely refutes what you're saying. (laughs) So so again, it kind of gets to what is the level of the of the student, um, an advanced student is going to have to go do that stuff. It's kind of like with the historiography, you're going to have to go read the 500 books on it. For primary source, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to have to go out and find all of the relevant primary sources within reason. I mean, you're we're not going to, you don't have to necessarily scour the every archive on the planet, obviously, but within reason, you're going to have to just find all of the relevant material and incorporate it into your project. You now, whether you cite it directly or whether it just goes into your bibliography as something that you looked at and then discarded, that's, that's who knows, but it's still kind of the responsibility to go find that stuff, even if it's not available online.
3: And a surfeit of the material that you find too should be organized and, uh, you know, degrees of significance and pertinence to your research question come up. But then, you know, even, you know, Documents or you know material culture or what have you that, that you don't at first deem relevant can later on become very very important.
0: And of course, cite everything along the way. <laughs> this is this isn't, yes. I think this is kind of peripheral, but, very, <laughs> but of but of absolute importance.
5: Everything,
0: because we all have probably had this situation. I certainly had it in in my MA thesis and my PhD dissertation. I know I read something and this would be perfect to insert in this spot, but I just cannot find that newspaper article where it mentioned it or whatever. And so I just can't use it because I didn't, because it's something I forgot to cite it or I did it wrong or whatever in the case may be. And so make sure you take solid notes on everything that you look at. So you can go find it later. Cause like Ryan said, you may, it may not seem important now, but when you get into the middle of writing, it may, that may be your smoking gun and you didn't realize it at the time, but Oh, boy, I wish I had that right now. And if you didn't track your, or you didn't note it correctly, you could be in some serious trouble. Another trick too would
2: be, and, and I did this in my doctoral work, was to create subfolders for your citations. So, you know, when you get into your chapters where that's going to go.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of people who use citation apps, uh, like Zotero, I think is one of them. And Endnotes, I think is one is one of them. I never really got into those. I, I um, But I but I know a lot of people do use those to kind of keep themselves organized with that kind of thing. And so that, that may be a, a, a good route for people to look at when they're first starting the research process is to figure out what type of app can help them to keep their notes organized. All right. It's time to move on. Thank you all for joining us today. Join us again in two weeks when the panel will explore the question, how do I develop a thesis statement or an argument for my project? This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Stitcher, Apple, Google, Amazon, Podbean, Pandora, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. This podcast does not represent the views of Southern New Hampshire University, although everybody here at one point or another has worked for SNHU. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Eric Greisinger, Allison Millward, CB Repass, Matt Chandler, and Ryan Tripp, I'm Rob Denning. And if you really want to blow your mind, consider how historians of the future will have to wade through all of the primary sources that each of us creates today through social media posts, text messages, and emails. The poor historian who has to dig through Twitter. ugh.